Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 7. We're going to talk about three things which I am calling crushing crowds, cowering demons, and calling twelve. And for all three of these, we're going to ask, what for? What were the crowds crushing Jesus for? What were the demons cowering for? And what was he calling the twelve for? Let's pray before we get in. Lord Jesus, we've been singing to you. We've been speaking with you. Now we pray that you would sing over us and speak into our hearts the word of life, the word of redemption, the word of renewal, the word of freedom, the word of wholeness, the word of power, the word of liberation, the word of life. Speak among us, Father. Speak into us, Father. Pray in Jesus' mighty name. I've got a slippery tie. I'm going to transfer it over to a lapel or something. Sorry. They'll tell me if I need to switch that again. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. A little bit of context before we jump in. The chapter before this, the verses right before this, is when Jesus spoke of being the Lord of the Sabbath and they went through the grain fields and they plucked the grain and the religious authorities were mad. And then he healed the guy with the withered hand on the wrong day and the religious authorities were really mad and they went out and made an unholy alliance and you see right before this passage that the Herodians and the Pharisees conspired together how they're going to kill Jesus. Now, Herodians are the government officials, secular government officials. The Pharisees are supposed to be the religious leaders and normally these two would be at odds because the Pharisees are going, this is God's house and we're God's people and these are foreign invaders. So something or other that Jesus was doing was so powerful that the government, the Roman Empire, locally was scared of him. They wanted to kill him. And something that Jesus did was so powerful that the whole religious establishment of Judaism, a centuries-old religion, was scared of him and they were so threatened that they wanted to kill him. What was Jesus doing? He's walking around healing people. They hadn't seen that before too often. So this follows. Jesus withdraws from that place to a kind of a more of a wilderness area by the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds won't stay away. They're not against him. They want the healing. They want to get whatever God has for them. So they follow him. And you get a sense from the text of huge crowds from a wide region. You have people from Judea, Jerusalem, that's kind of close. Edomia is way down the southern part of Israel. And Tyre and Sidon, they're way up on the coast in, in Lebanon now. They're way up there. And they've come from a long ways and they want to get their money's worth. 
They're not going to let this pass by without getting what they need from Jesus, right? If you come, I don't know, from Duluth to church this morning, you want it to be good, right? You don't want to say, just go to any old rinky-dink thing. You want, if you come from a distance, you want it to pay off. And there's a sense here, it says, to keep the crowd, people from crowding him, the word is literally crushing him. So this is not just like, you know, jostling full as you're going into the movie theater or something. This is a crushing crowd. I think of, in my mind, I think of like the uh, footage of early Beatles films or something where the crowd is just so crazy into it that, the, you know, the, the, they need to be protected from the crowd. And so Jesus has a boat ready and makes a little separation between himself and the people. What for? Because usually I see Jesus going to people. Jesus doesn't withdraw very often unless it's, I mean, he does, but there's a reason for it. What for? So Jesus is separating himself from the people right here. And that catches my eye. And I go, what were you doing, Lord? Well, first of all, it's just the practical, of course. You've got the crowd control aspect, and he didn't want to get crushed. Remember, at this time, he's still a man. I mean, he's fully divine, all all that. But he's only got one body to work with. He's constrained until the Holy Spirit is kindled on earth. And so he needs to be able to separate enough to carry forward what he needs to do in that time and place. We just finished an election season. Almost finished. And, And every politician at every level was doing anything they could to get the crowd with them. They would say anything. They would not say something that was true because it might offend somebody or might drive someone off. They would say whatever they need to or appoint whatever person they need to to whatever post in order to draw a crowd of following. And Jesus never, ever does that. Jesus does not call crowds. He calls individuals. He calls you and me. He calls name by name, person by person. Jesus does not call crowds. In John chapter 6, we have a long extended passage. That's where he feeds the crowd, 5,000 or something. And then they want to come make him king by force. He does not follow that agenda. He withdraws. And then he starts to work the crowd the other way and says, you don't want what I have to give you. You just came because you got a free meal. That's all you want. And I came to give you the word of life and you don't care. And they start to thin out some and go away. This is a hard teaching. And Jesus says, you think this is hard? Try this. You must eat my flesh or you won't have life. You must drink my blood or you won't have life in you. And he takes this multitude and he takes it down and down and down and down to 12 people. And the 12 are in doubt. And he says, will you also go away? Bless Peter's heart. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and understand that you are the Holy One of God. Praise God. Peter got it. The crowd didn't get it. Healing was not Jesus' only purpose. If he wanted to heal people, he could have run through the crowd the way the football teams run on, tapping every hand they can reach, you know. You know, just, you know, he could have done that and the healing would have happened. Healing was not his only purpose. Remember the paralytic who got let through the roof to the feet of Jesus? 
I always wonder who paid for that roof. What did Jesus say first? You know, your sins are forgiven. And only when they grumble, he says, okay, which is harder, to forgive sins or to, or to say you're, you're healed? And so, just so that you'll know I have the authority to forgive sins, I will heal this man. And get up, take your pallet, go home. So the guy does it. Now, what if Jesus had skipped the first one? What if the guy gets let through the thing onto the floor in front of Jesus and Jesus says, take up your pallet and walk? And he walks out. He might, be, he might be a marathon runner. He might be a sprinter. He might have a good, healthy life for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years if he's good. But one day he's going to die, and then what happens? He could still be unforgiven. So Jesus had much more to do than to bring healing to a crowd. And when they were so frantic to get to him and crush him and get a hold of something from God... He had to withdraw, almost like, I think of it almost like a timeout. See, just stop, just stop. And the crowd wanted less, not more, than Jesus wanted to give them. They wanted healing, they wanted a meal. Jesus wanted to give them life, but they couldn't hear it. How often do we throng, crush Jesus for something that we're desperate for. We come a long way and we're really desperate for God and we really need it and it really matters and we're frantic and frazzled and I don't know, we're just so fixated on that one thing we want from Jesus that we can't stop and hear what does he have for us. I know what I want Jesus for. Do I know what he wants me for? There is a time and a place to cry to Jesus in desperate need. I'm not saying don't do that, okay? There's the blind man by the road to Jericho, and he cries out, and they try, shut up, you're making a fuss. And he's, he cried all the more. He's not going to let this chance go. And Jesus blessed him, called him to himself, and blessed him. So there's a time and a place for crying out to Jesus in desperate need. That's okay. But if you've been doing that, and you're getting more and more frantic about it and he's just God's just not getting it and he seems to step back instead of toward you have you been there you I'm sure you have maybe it's because maybe it's because he has something else or better or more to give you than what you thought you so desperately needed from him will you give him the space Speak into the quiet place of your heart with what he wants to say to you instead of what you demand from him. God is not rejecting us at such a time. He's calling us to something deeper and better. Pastor Jim always says, when you find, hear a no from God, look for the yes behind the no. I believe that God has a yes for you. Let's move on. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Uh, This is a little bit of a tangent here, but 
the demons see him as the son of God. But it starts out, whenever the evil spirits see him. And I'm going to ride this for just a minute here. I believe that the evil spirits' knowledge is finite. It is limited. I believe they came to a place, there's a time before they saw who he was. I'm saying see in terms of recognition, okay, not, not just visible. Um, there was a time before that whenever they saw him, they didn't just cry out and fall down before they saw him. There's a time before they see him. There's a time before they recognize what they're up against. Okay? Yeah. Demon's knowledge is finite. It's limited. It's not like God who knows everything before he even gets into a situation. Their knowledge is finite, and they don't know everything. And I have to say that. We're going to talk a little more later. We, we, I have to say that because we sometimes get into this feeling. We give more credit than he deserves to the enemy. Okay? Yeah. He's limited. He doesn't know everything. God does. We're on the winning side in this one. So whenever they saw him, there's that moment when I believe they said, uh-oh, uh-oh, this conflict is above my pay grade. I'm up against the Son of God. I'd best be leaving. I'm... The commentaries actually disagree with me on this, and they're probably smarter, so you can take your pick. They say that calling Jesus the Son of God is an attempt to gain control. When you name something, it's like you own it, you have a power over it. But I see that following, falling down before him. And I don't see, if you're falling down before Jesus, I don't see that as a power venture. But whatever, it's okay. They might, they're probably smarter and all that stuff. Okay. When they did see Jesus, they recognized and understood his true identity long before any human did. Isn't that a little bit sad? Yeah. That the only people who really knew who Jesus was and what he came to do were his enemies. The disciples didn't get it. They, they didn't get it until even after the cross. They didn't get it till the resurrection. He lived all those years among close friends who loved him and cared about him and all this, but they just didn't get it. Have you ever felt like those closest to me just don't get it? They don't know what... And I believe the enemy probably knows, knows how to operate against you in that. But why, why keep them silent? It's true, right? Jesus is the Son of God. So why not let them know? What for? Why did he silence them? First, there is the control aspect. If they name him, they think they have power, and Jesus is not going to play that game. He says, just shut up. We're not talking about that now. We're not talking about that here. Secondly, even if what the demons say about Jesus is true, would you want to receive that from demons? I mean, who is the one who should proclaim the identity of Jesus? Is it not us, his followers? It's not you and me who should say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't want to give them a moment to proclaim that because I want to be doing it before they get the chance. Thirdly, think of the crowd. If they're already frantic and frenetic and kind of crushing, trying to crush Jesus, what if it was announced, hey, you are the Son of God? Oh my, it would, just, it would turn into complete bedlam. But fourth, and this is more important, Jesus' timing, 
his calling and purpose in coming to earth was not at first to come as the Son of God. Yes, that's who he is. I'm not taking anything out of that. I'm not saying he wasn't God. But when he came to earth, he's born in the stable, laid in the manger, and walked the streets as a carpenter's son or whatever else. He did not come in power and glory as the Son of God. He came first to identify with us. First to identify with us, not with God. He knew that. He didn't have to do that. We didn't need that. The Israelites didn't need that. They already knew God. But they didn't know that God would make a way for them to come up. Jesus came in humility and weakness and suffering to identify with us completely through and through, not a thing that we go through that he hasn't tasted. Rejection, shame, despair, hunger, fatigue, temptation, you name it, he's been there. He has been there. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through him everything exists, should make the author of their faith, of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. If he came as the son of God, he's not going to taste flesh and blood. But he was willing to come. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. Your desperate need, he knows what it's like. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I was so glad we said Jesus is Lord this morning. We don't plan those things. God knows where we need to go. So if Jesus had come obviously as the Son of God, where would we be? We wouldn't have any of this. We'd have righteousness on earth maybe, but we'd all be on the wrong side of the law. We'd all be the guilty criminals. Because we're all guilty. Jesus came to be with us, to be like us, 
He is the Son of God. But that's not what he came for yet. That day's coming. Amen. That day's coming. I've got a little analogy I like to use when I think about Jesus coming uh, as a man, as a human. Um, just picture the, a, a, like a fairy tale analogy. So you have this rich prince, and he's riding around the country on his fine horse and his armor and all that, and he sees a beautiful peasant girl in a little shop somewhere. And he just falls in love with this peasant girl, and he decides he really, really wants her to marry him. And he could just command it, right? He could say, I want you, you're the one, let's go. And she would, you know, presumably in old days, she'd have, not, have little to say about it. But he doesn't just want her as his uh, appendage. He wants her heart. He doesn't want her to want him for the money or for the power or for the nice bed to sleep in. He wants her to love him for his heart. And so he takes off his royal robe, takes off his armor. He leaves his horse at the stable and he walks up to her shop and he wins her heart so that she can love him for who he is and not what he can do for her. You with me? So Jesus came not as the Son of God and he was the Son of God, but he came in humility so that we could have life and we could know him and come to him for who he is, not what he does for us. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Notice the first part that we, when when I was preparing this message, the first thing that struck me about this was the contrast between in the first part, the crowd, everyone wants him and he withdraws. And here, having withdrawn, he calls people to himself. He names them one by one by one by one. There's a contrast here. And I'm thinking, well, what for? Jesus, what, what causes you to withdraw? And then what causes you to call? And for us, what causes us to throng him? And what causes us to answer the call? The 12 that he called were not just, you know, he comes in and sees who's there and says, okay, I'll take Nicholas, good-looking guy, Sharon, woman of prayer, you'd be good. Candace, um, I know you're going to get married, but I need you to follow me for a while. Um, you know, he doesn't, it's not a random selection. Luke tells us that he spent the whole night in prayer. And why might he do that? Why did he call these guys? He's going to be out of here in three years, and somebody needs to carry on the story so that we here today can hear about it. Somebody's got to carry that message forward. And somebody in that 12 is going to betray him so that he goes to the cross. Somebody in, the crowd, in that 12 is going to take the money. Somebody in that 12 is going to deny him. I don't even know the guy. Somebody in that 12 is going to say, God, we were at this Samaritan village and they rejected us and we want to call fire from heaven down and take those people out. We're bringing the word of life and they don't want it. Okay, then give them. 
Do you ever wonder why they uh, quarrel on the road? He appointed Simon, who he gave the name Peter. Oh, side point. Jesus has the right to rename you. Jesus has the right to rename you. We have an identity that we come to him with. He makes us new. He gives us a new identity. Simon Peter became the rock. Kind of a cracked rock a little bit early on, but God took care of that and brought him back in, right? He's the one who denied Jesus. James and John, Boanerges, I can't even pronounce it, which means sons of thunder. Let's get on to the English. (laughs) Sons of thunder. Man, that can be good or bad. They're the ones who wanted the fire from heaven on the bad guys. But you know what? As I was praying for this message, I felt like God wanted to roar from heaven. There's a thunder in God's voice that can just kind of shake the foundations and let things come together again after he's kind of rearranged some things. So this was a personal and prayerful selection of 12. And I always wonder about, you know, they, you know, when he sent them out two by two, so which two did he put together? Did he put Matthew the tax collector with Simon the zealot, who was a revolutionary? That would be kind of like Dick Cheney with um, one of the anarchists. So as they're walking down the road together, they would kind of have some things to talk about. <laughs> or did he put the brothers together because they get along well and he doesn't want any disunity on the mission? You know, I, I just wonder. They don't tell us that. You can ask him when you get there. Anyway, so no wonder they would quarrel from time to time. Um, and, but you know what? Um, we read a lot about quarreling before the resurrection. We don't read about quarreling after the resurrection. When they see the risen Jesus, they're one. They are one. They are one after Jesus is raised. They are one in purpose and unity. So God doesn't call us to be Lone Ranger Christians. Um, He puts us in a family where we sometimes feel like, this doesn't fit me. Why did you put me with him? One of my, my own stumbling blocks, when I was uh, uh, first coming, I felt like God was calling me to come back to him, you know, and it's like, yeah, but then I have to hang out with those guys. It kind of, you know, I, I, had, I was trying valiantly to escape nerdism, and I was just guard, getting, I was starting to play rock and roll and get out of the nerd crowd and into the semi-cool crowd, and then God said, <laughs> not that you guys are all nerds, I don't mean, but where I was... <laughs> Where I was going to school, it was like there were some people that I didn't want to hang out with, but they were my brothers and sisters. And so one of the things I had to lay down was, who will I hang with? See, we're not called to the Lone Ranger life of discipleship. And sometimes it doesn't feel too good, but God uses that to show a greater unity that's bigger than my peculiarities and yours. God calls each one of us, like the twelve, by name. Not one of us is lost in the crowd to him. Not one is lost in the crowd. He leaves the 99 to find the one. One more little story. When I, um, I, I used to pastor a church, and when I became no longer on staff, and then when I had to leave that church, um, I felt as if my heart and soul were ripped out, thrown on the ground and trampled. Because you pour your heart into something and then it gets basically spat on. And so then I'm going around and I'm looking for, we're trying to find a church because we're people of God. You can't just not go to church. 
And so all of a sudden I went from being up here, you know, man of the word and all that, and everyone knows you, to being um, a face in the crowd who raises his hand when they say, anyone here for the first time today? And I felt so empty and so lost and so diminished, so undone. And one day, at, I was worshiping at a church, and um, it just felt like the Lord said to me, I know where you're sitting. I know where you're sitting. I know where you are. I haven't lost track of you. I hear your voice in the praise. It doesn't have to be amplified. It doesn't have to be front and center. Everyone listening politely. He hears my voice in the assembly. He hears my voice in the secret place. He hears my voice when I cry to him. In desperate need, he hears my voice when I come to him in quietness and trust. He hears my voice. He calls each of us by name, and he calls us to a mission and a purpose, right? He, he called them, first of all, that they might be with him. The first thing in a Christian's job description is be with him. Don't go running off to, do, to fight the battle till you know what the commander wants, till you know the commander by face, by name, by voice. Don't say, oh, it sounds good, sign me up, and here I go. Forgot something there, to be with him. And of course, later on, when the apostles are dragged into court, they recognize, the, the opponents recognize that they had been with Jesus. So that's the first part of our job description. And for them, it was that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And we are sent out to preach. And we have authority over the evil powers. As a people of God, collectively for absolute sure, even individually, when God sends you to a place, to a job, he has given you, he will give you the authority and the capability to carry it out. So that means if you're up against a demon, then you're the one. God's authority. Um, two weeks ago, I had an experience where um, a deliverance issue where, um, you know, I'm not into that stuff. God was supposed to call pastor, but he didn't. He called me. <laughs> um, so I had to go, and I just prayed before I went, Lord, I need the host of heaven. I need the host of heaven to come with me. Because who am I? But <laughs> I'm the one that you called. So here we go. And I called one or two people and asked them to pray. And we went. And what I discovered in that encounter um, was that I was scared. <laughs> but what I discovered is the enemy was more scared than I was. Little me. And he's freaking out and running for his life. Because when God sends us to a place, he gives us the authority to carry it out. We're not in this alone. There are good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do, for us to walk in. Have you thought about that ever? Have you missed some good works lately? <laughs> he's prepared stuff for us to walk in. I'm not going to put it up. It's Ephesians 2. There's good works that he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. So where are you walking? You might have missed something. <laughs> I want to walk daily with his good works in mind. When I'm, when I'm in a grocery store, I want to be, I don't always do this, but I want to be saying, who is it, God? Is there someone here that needs just a, just a word of encouragement? When I'm on my bus, I try very, very hard to look each person 
in the eye as they get on the bus. I really do. And I think, and I'm praying, God, are you the, is this the one? What do they need from you? What do they need? How are you going to work in their eyes? He has good works for us to walk in. See how much better this is than just waiting for the weekend? You know? I mean, work is just work. But when it becomes under the authority and power and calling of Jesus, it's transformed into sweetness and life and joy. The vibrancy of life kicks in, and all of a sudden, we're going somewhere. We're purposeful in our work. Oh, don't miss it. Don't miss it. God calls us. He knits us together in the womb. You're not a biological accident. You're not a parent's accident. You're not a matter of chance of which sperm which hit which egg or which DNA combat combo was face up when they got to the right place. I don't know how that stuff works. <laughs> anyway, but you're not an accident. God was knitting you together in your mother's womb so that you could have a calling and a purpose that fits you and nobody else. And if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. But it's joy for you when you find it and when you walk in it. Not necessarily a big photo opportunity, glossies. You won't be on the, I always say, you won't be on the cover of Christian Woman magazine or, you know, God's Man magazine. I don't know what they are. I don't even read those things. You know, there are never ugly people on the cover of those magazines, right? So where does that leave the rest of us, you know? Like, they just pick the best, the glossiest. And God has infantry who are out there in the trenches, in the mud, in the muck and the mire, being faithful to him. We're not going to make the magazine cover, but he knows where we are. He's saying, good job. Yeah, let's go on. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, please. And they're going to play, and we're going to, I'm going to talk a little more while they're playing. Um, and then we're going to give an invitation here. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. God calls each of us by name. Not one of us is lost in the crowd to him. He left the 99 to find the one. There is a place at a table in heaven with your name on it. It's a reserved seat. There's a place at his table in heaven with your name on it. And if you're not there, the place is empty. The invitation is yours. It's yours. I don't know each by name, but he does. I want to give a three-part invitation today. The first is this. first two are a little bit... Whatever. The first is this. If you have been kind of 
thronging Jesus or crushing him or coming to him out of a, such a desperate need. You're so frantic about this thing that you just got to get from God. And he's withdrawn a step. I want to invite you to come forward. I'm going to also ask the prayer ministers and maybe some elders to come up and just to be ready to pray with you. Um, you guys can come on up. Um, and then what I'd like to ask you to do is repent of that kind of insistence on that one thing that you want from Jesus. Yeah, yeah prayer ministers and elders, please come on up. These guys will pray with you. And what I'd like you to do, there's a place for a desperate need, I know that. But what I'd like you to do is, if he's not giving that to you, then step back, let someone pray with you and say, okay, God, what is it you do want to give me? Because when he steps back, it's not to withdraw, it's to say, wait, time out. What do you need? I want to give you something more than you think you need. Second invitation. If you ever are using the name of Jesus, the identity Jesus of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. If you're ever using that like a pop machine, you put in the quarter, the name, and you get what you want out the bottom, will you repent of that? We don't, man we don't manipulate Jesus into doing what we want by, by calling on his name. Okay, that's not what he's about. That's a misuse of his name. The third invitation is if you have not heard his call to you, hear it today. Hear it today. Hear it today. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to miss their place at the table. He has so much more for you than you, than you know. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. Jesus said, I know them. They follow me. I, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're going to sing, then I'm going to pray, and feel free to come while we're singing. <laughs>